you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 56. We're going to be, it's right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, We're going to look at Psalm 56, which is a Psalm of David. We're studying the life of David, and David wrote lots of Psalms. And so we're going to look at one of those uh, this morning uh, for our passage and for our study. So this is God's holy word, starting in verse 1 of Psalm chapter 56. Follow along with me as I read. You can see it printed for you in your bulletin, or it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are evil against me. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render Thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is God's word. Let me pray. Ask God to help us this morning through his spirit with this passage. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would come now. Um, This is kind of a sleepy morning. But you want to meet with us through your word. And so I pray that you would come through your spirit and stir us up. Stir up our hearts. Uh, move us. Uh, apply this passage to our hearts so that we might be changed. So that we might live differently and so that we might be encouraged. Also this morning uh, we come with a heavy heart as we think about uh, Las Vegas and the shootings uh, a week ago. Lord, we grieve over these things, and we don't understand these things. And I pray that you would be uh, near to these families that have lost loved ones, those that are injured and have been wounded. I pray that you would bring healing and restoration to them. And Lord, it's events like these that leave us crying, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come back into the world and make it right. Make it whole. Take away these things. And so... Lord, we ask uh, for you to come, for you to make the world right. Lord, uh, be with us this morning in this passage. Show us the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This fall, we've been doing a study through the life of David, and we've been focusing on First and Second Samuel. Uh, today, we're taking a break, of course, to look at a psalm, and we'll probably do this a couple of more times because, again, David wrote lots of psalms. 
And in First and Second Samuel, we've been concentrating and looking at this question or the theme that we've been tracing is this idea of earthy spirituality. That's the way Eugene Peterson, he's a commentator and a pastor, it's the way he phrases it, ordinary spirituality. Every day, the normal Christian life, what does it look like? Uh, and David kind of shows us what it looks like. Because David is a person, a real person. Yes, he's a king, but he's just like us. And he's a man after God's own heart. And he's trying to follow Jesus or trying to follow God in this world. And so last week we saw that the ordinary, normal Christian life involves friendship. This week we see uh, a topic that we're going to look at is a topic that is common to every single person in this room, no matter who you are and what you believe about Jesus and the Bible and Christianity. We're going to talk about the reality of suffering. Everyone in this room knows what it's like to experience pain and difficulty and grief and suffering, no matter who you are or where you come from. And it's in these moments... These moments of pain and suffering and difficulty that leave us asking a question, where is God? Where is God in all this? And you see, that is a very important question for you to answer and for you to ask. There's no more important question than that. And I, I would put it back to you this morning. Uh, can you answer that question? In other words, do you have a worldview this morning that holds out the reality of suffering in a broken world and the hardship in which we face, but at the very same time holds out for you incredible hope? Do you have a worldview that can acknowledge both of those things at the same time? See, what tends to happen is we tend to either focus on one or the other. For example, we... Uh, tend to give up on hope. And when we give up on hope, the brokenness and suffering of the world overtakes us and it makes us cynical and it makes us bitter and it makes us hard-hearted and it takes away some of our humanity, in a sense. Or if we don't do that, we go to the other side and maybe we don't acknowledge, we, uh, we over-focus on the hope and it becomes very superficial. You know, everything, I'm, I'm good. Everything's good. And we just smile and kind of go through life, and it's a way that we cover up the hard stuff and the difficulty. See, one of the things that I love about Christianity and love about the Bible is that it shows us how to suffer well. Because the Bible acknowledges on the one hand that this world is very, very hard. And there is oftentimes lots of pain, but at the very same time, it also acknowledges that there is hope in the midst of our suffering. And you know as well as I do, suffering can soften your heart and make you lean into God and to Jesus and soften you, or suffering can harden your heart and push you away and cause you to perhaps even lose your faith. Very rarely, friends, does suffering leave you neutral. So the question that we're going to look at this morning through this passage is this. How do you suffer well? How do you suffer well in this life? How do you suffer in a way that doesn't leave you hard-hearted and bitter and angry, but softens your heart and leads you closer to Jesus? How do we respond rightly to suffering in a broken, fallen world? 
That's the question. And we see three ways in this passage. Number one, we've got to be honest about our suffering. We've got to acknowledge it. We can't just always smile and just grin and bear it and fight through it. Secondly, we've got to lean into God or trust God with our insides. Thirdly, we see we've got to remember His love, rest in His love for us. So let's look at those three things, beginning with number one. We've got to acknowledge the suffering or be honest about it. Before we jump in, we need to look at the context for this psalm. And to find the context for the psalms, most of the time you just have to look above the psalm and the italics, it's in your Bible, it's known as the superscription. And it basically tells you the context for what the psalm for which the psalm is written. And we see here, if you look at the superscription, it's in your bulletin printed for you. This was written by David when he was seized by the Philistines in Gath. And where was David seized by the Philistines in Gath? Well, we know that comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 and following. You can make a note of that and read that later um, this afternoon if you want to know the full story. But let me give you a summary. David is being chased down by Saul because Saul is jealous of him. Saul wants to kill David, and David is running for his life. And Saul launches this all-out nationwide manhunt in order to track David down and to kill him. And David runs of all places to Achish, the king of Gath. And so David runs and tries to escape in Gath. That should sound very strange to you. Why? Well, because Gath was the hometown for who? Goliath. Why in the world would David do such a thing? We don't know, but perhaps he's thinking this. Saul will never think to look here. He will look everywhere else but Gath because he knows I'm a wanted man, and so he thinks he can hide out and fly under the radar, perhaps, in Gath, but what little did he know that he's a celebrity? Remember a few weeks ago when he fights Goliath? I said they had a, you know, if, it didn't, if you don't have a picture of it, it didn't happen. And so they have their iPhone and they're recording David take down Goliath. They post it on YouTube and it gets over a million hits. And so David is an instant celebrity. And so he's crazy to think he will not be noticed. Not only that, but if you read 1 Samuel 21... And a little bit earlier in chapter 21, he's carrying into Gath Goliath's sword with him. And so, of course, he's noticed. And so they apprehend him and they arrest him. And they are seeking, bringing him into custody. And they're eventually going to kill David. And in chapter 21, it says David was very afraid. So you know what he does? This is not David's best moment, but you can read it. It's actually kind of crazy. David starts acting crazy. And so he has this beard and he lets spit run down into his beard. And he starts writing these crazy things all over the wall and speaking gibberish so that they will think he's crazy because it was a superstition back then. You didn't want crazy people around in your community because it was a superstition that that was bad luck for you. So Achish says, get him out of here. He has no place to go. David is all alone running for his life and he runs to a cold, dark cave. And as he's hiding there, 
he pulls out his moleskin journal and he pens Psalm 56. And he shows us how to deal with suffering. And the very first thing we see here is that to deal with suffering, you have to acknowledge the hardship. You've got to acknowledge the suffering. Look at verses 1 and 2, and you really see it throughout. All day long they trample me. The attackers try to oppress me. David is crying out for mercy. He's at the end of his rope. He's desperate. Verse 8, evidently he had also been crying a lot. David does what all the Psalms do. Read the Psalms. If you're suffering and struggling, live in the Psalms because they are way more honest than we are about our suffering. And they're even more honest than David is here about most of the Psalms are than we see here with David in this one. But David, just like all the psalmists, they're gut-level honest about the fact that life is hard. David's saying, my suffering is real, I am hurting, I am crying. And I know that sounds really obvious to most of us, and you're like, okay, tell me something I don't know. But we need to talk about this, because that's often not the way we are in the midst of our suffering. We don't like to acknowledge that we have need. We don't like to acknowledge that things are hard and that we are wounded and weak. You know, we live in a world where there's pressure to have it all together all the time, even when things are hard, to put on a smile and fake it till you make it. And one of the ways that we often judge whether someone is suffering well is by looking at their life and saying, boy, they have it all together. They're still putting one foot in front of the other. They're plowing forward. They're moving forward. They're doing really well. But listen, if this psalm tells us anything this morning, it tells us that the Christian life is not about having it all together. It's not. You know what the Christian life is about? Desperation. It's about desperation. David was desperate. David is sad. David is afraid. He is weeping. And listen, nothing bugs me more than when a preacher paints this picture of the victorious Christian life that we can somehow achieve if we just have enough faith, it'll all work out. If we can just do X, Y, and Z, then life will work for me. Or if I get further along in my faith and and I'm really, really mature, then I won't have any problems and life won't be hard. Don't you wish that were true? (laughs) That's not true and it's not biblical. But somehow we buy into this way of thinking. And friends, I do it too. We spend lots of money and energy and time trying to find something in life that will work for us. The key to life. So that we can arrange our life in just the right way so that life won't be hard for us. Kate, my uh, oldest daughter, came home. uh, She's a sixth grader. And sixth grader means what? The dreaded locker. (laughs) And a combination and a lock that you've got to try to work. And when she came home talking about her locker, it threw me back to when I was a sixth grader. And I don't think anything was more stressful for me heading into middle school than the lock combination. I remember we even went out and got a 
lock so that I could practice at home. So that I would go and I could figure out the combination because I didn't want to be embarrassed, but I thought if I can figure out that combination, everything would be okay and life would work for me. That's what the world says. The world says figure out the combination and unlock the key to life. And if you do that, life will be good for you. And we start to do everything in our power to figure out the right combination, to figure out the right version in life, to make all the right moves so that we don't have to suffer and so that life won't be hard for us and so we get more involved in more hobbies and spend more time in our hobbies. Or we think, if I can just get to retirement, I will finally be able to breathe and life will be good. Or we think, if I can just go on that 25-year marriage anniversary, that anniversary trip that we've been saving for our entire life, I'll be able to breathe. Oh, life will be so good. And what happens? You finally get what you want. And life is still hard. You still get the phone call that stops you dead in your tracks. You still get the knock on the door bringing bad news. And on the 25th anniversary trip, you're still having the knockdown drag out with your spouse. And no matter how mature you are spiritually, the addiction will not go away. Or maybe life is hard and we keep trying to find the combination by sanitizing our world. And we say, I'm just not going to feel. I'm just going to lock my heart away and uh, just try to protect myself as much as possible. No one will ever hurt me. I will be happy forever. And when you do that, you actually dehumanize yourself because you refuse to feel. And you just simply shut down and you never enter in to your own suffering, but also to the suffering of someone else. David is showing us this morning is there is no combination. There's not a combination. The Christian life isn't about figuring out a certain combination. Because life is really hard. And it's confusing. Yes, it's wonderful. Yes, there's tons of joy and it's beautiful. But those two, joy and sorrow, are held together at the very same time in our world. Can I ask you this morning to just invite you just to admit that it's really hard sometimes in this world. Can I invite you this morning and encourage you just to be honest and say, I have no idea what to do. But my loss that I am experiencing right now is so very painful. There's cancer in my family and death. And there's just no way that this is going to be fixed. I have no idea what to do. There's no solution here. I want to invite you to do that. And you know, here's what I want for our church and for our community. It's for this to be a place that you can bring your pain just like David, and be honest about it and have someone actually come around you and love you and give you a hug and just simply be present, not to try to speak some trite saying into their life, but just to simply to say, I know this is really hard. I love you and you're not alone. 
the normal Christian life. That is the normal Christian life. That's the response to suffering because that's what we see with David. Friends, it is anti-Christian to fake it till you make it. Secondly, to suffer well, not only do we need to be honest or acknowledge our suffering, but we need to trust God in the midst of it. Look at verse 3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Isn't that interesting? David's talking to himself. That's what faith is. Faith is not some vague sense that it's all going to work out. Faith is not letting go and letting God. Faith is very active. No one talks to themselves more than you. How do you talk to yourself? That is activating faith in your life. That's what David does. Look at, look at the passage. He stares the reality of his suffering in the face. He looks it in the eye and he says, God, I am scared. I am afraid. But when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. When I'm afraid, when I'm suffering, I will. Here's the foreground. Remember what's in your foreground. Is it your circumstances or is it God? David is saying, when I am suffering, I will focus. What will be in my foreground is your love and loyalty for me, your faithfulness and your goodness. David is saying this, in the hard moments of life, he's saying to God, God, it doesn't feel like you're very good right now. But faith is choosing to believe something other than what you feel. That's what faith is. How you feel about something does not determine whether it's actually true. And so what does this mean for us? Well, this is when it gets a little tough. Because you see what this means for us is that God actually uses suffering and storms in our lives in order to reveal what we're really trusting in and in order to show what our faith is really in and what we're really living for. Listen, this is tough because God is sovereign. We believe over our suffering. And you might not want to believe that, but if you don't believe that, then you're really in trouble. Because if you don't believe God's in, in charge and in control of your suffering, then that means it's meaningless. And man, that'd be tough. God is in control. He is sovereign over your suffering. And that means that there is a purpose for your suffering, even though we oftentimes don't know what that is. You see, God uses these things to reveal our hearts. Why? Because God is a jealous God. And he wants all of us. He wants every single inch of our heart because he wants to conform us into his image. And one of the ways that he does that is through suffering. He uses suffering in your life in order to wean you off of your affections for this world. To wean you off of your security blanket so that you might trust and have faith in him. Elizabeth Elliot, she's an author, and she has written several books, but she tells this story about a time she was in North Wales. And she was watching a shepherd 
basically dip his sheep into this disinfectant pool and order basically so they wouldn't get all these insects and parasites and diseases and end up dying. But she describes how hard that was for her to watch because the shepherd is, and the sheep do not like it. They're screaming, they're struggling, they're moving, trying with everything in them to get away. But the shepherd pushes them down into the pool. And she says, just when you thought it was over, he pushes them down one more time into this pool. And she says, you know, that's the very best thing that can be done for those sheep. Because it's actually saving their life. And then she adds this comment. I wonder what it feels like to think that your shepherd is trying to kill you. Anybody ever feel that way? Anyone ever felt like the good shepherd, because of all the suffering that you've experienced, is trying to kill you? Rather than thinking that, the Bible says... That is it not possible that the good shepherd who is all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful and all-loving would actually use suffering and use hard things in order to drive us into deeper faith in him and to help us to grow and to change and mature and to trust in him more? See, suffering is purposeful. Suffering reveals our faith and shows what we're really looking to in this world for security and trust in faith. For example, if you're trusting in your health and in your appearance, when your health starts to fade away, then you're completely undone. Or if you're trusting in your money and in your wealth, when you have economic suffering and the stock market totally bottoms out and all of your money is suddenly gone, then your life is shattered. You see, suffering weans you away from the false gods, from the false things in order to show us that Jesus is the only one we can trust. That He is our only hope. And He is the only thing that we need to lean into because He has the words for eternal life. Because though this world might take our body, Jesus, if you have Him, it cannot take your soul. Lastly, We need to to suffer well. We need to remember that God is for us. Look at verses 8 and 9. I've never preached on this psalm, but this is one of my favorite images in the entire uh, book of Psalms. You have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears. Notice the personal nature of that. David's saying, you've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? People keep all sorts of things, don't they? People keep old pictures. People keep letters and wedding dresses. People keep a child's first tooth. Well, God, David tells us, he keeps things too. Les Newsom, who was my area coordinator with RUF when I was at Ole Miss, tells this story about a time he was going to a coffee shop uh, to meet a friend. His friend had gotten there early. Les was running late, and so his friend decided to open up his Bible and start reading. So he starts reading his Bible, 
And Les kind of walks in, and he has this weird look on his face, and he says, what's wrong? What happened? And the guy looks at him and says, you're not going to believe this. I was sitting here reading my Bible, and this guy walks up to me, doesn't introduce himself, doesn't say a word. He just simply says, did you know that God has a picture of you in his wallet? And that he goes around heaven and he shows you off to all of the angels. And then the guy just walked out. Now listen, I know that story's a little cheesy. But the sentiment is true, is it not? God loves you so much and you are so dear and personal. It's so personal that he has a picture of you in his wallet. Or we would say on his iPhone now. And not only does he have a picture of you in his wallet that he's showing all the angels in heaven, he also keeps all of your tears in a bottle. Isn't that an amazing picture? Not only that, but he keeps the journal on you. He keeps count of your tossings. He's literally tallying them up in his journal. He remembers everything about us. And it was that thought for David that comforted him in a horrible low point in his life. And it is that thought that should comfort us this morning in the midst of our suffering. Friends, God really does care about you in a very personal way. And then look at how he works this out. Verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. David is in his lowest point in his life. He has been forsaken. He's been betrayed. He's been on the run. He's completely helpless. He's at the end of his rope. And at that point, if that's us, here's what we normally do. Where are you? God. God has left me. God has forsaken me. What have I done to deserve this? David says, This I know that God is for me. Why? Because David, again, foreground, background, is looking at his life and his suffering and pain through the lens of God's love for him. He was convinced that God is for me, and that shaped the way he viewed everything in his life. David could say, God, I don't like this. And this is not the way that I would have written my story. And I don't understand, and I don't know why, but I know that you are for me. I know that it can't be. The reason these things are happening in my life, it's not because you don't love me. It cannot be that. It cannot be that. And that changed David's life and the way he viewed suffering because he knew God loved him. He knew God was crazy about him and had a picture of him in his wallet. And the same is true for us this morning. Friends, if you do not view suffering through the lens of God's love for you, when you start to suffer and things don't go your way and you have hardship and pain, you will immediately, it'll be a knee-jerk reaction, you will say, God's mad at me. God's punishing me. God doesn't like me anymore. He's turned his back on me. What have I done to deserve this? That's where you will go if you're not looking through the lens of God's love for you. And so then the question becomes for us, how do we know? Jason, how can you sit here and say that God loves me? How can I be assured of that? 
Here's how you can be assured of God's love for you. Because you see, God took on flesh and came down into real history in the person of Jesus Christ. And while we were still sinners, Christ died. David had a sense of God's love for him, but David had no idea about the lengths to which God would go to in order to rescue him. But we do, because we live this side of the cross, we look back and we can see that God took on flesh and entered history through the person of Jesus. And like David, Jesus was betrayed by those closest to him. Like David, he was arrested. Jesus was arrested by those who wanted to kill him. And like David, he found himself at the mercy of a wicked pagan king. But like David, or unlike David, Jesus did not escape. Jesus did not make it out alive. He he did not defend himself, but he was silent before the authorities. And they executed him on a tree. Why? Why would Jesus go in and plunge himself into that sort of suffering voluntarily? Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read it. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross despising its shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did God endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. What is the joy that is set before him? You and me. Those whose tears he's holding in a bottle. And think about this question. Could the Father send his only Son to the cross for you only to forget you? No. That doesn't make any sense. You see, the cross is the key. Because the cross shows us we have proof that God has not left us. We have proof that God is for us in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through. You might say, I have no idea why God is doing this. You can say, I don't get it. I don't know why he's chosen to bring this into my life. But what we can say is it's not because he's not for me. It's not because he doesn't love me. We can say with David, because of the cross, this I know for sure. God is for me. See, nothing, not cancer, not death, Not sickness, not freak accidents and chronic pain and betrayal of friends and infertility and hard marriages. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, there is nothing that will ever touch you that has not passed first through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that brings incredible comfort to me in the midst of a world that is broken and that is often very, very hard. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, you've delivered us from death through the cross. And you, through your resurrection, have uh, guaranteed us eternal life, that our souls... Though our bodies are wasting away, our souls will live forever. And you, If you love us this much, and if you record all of our tears in a bottle, and you keep count of our tossings, 
we have nothing to be afraid of. Give us courage. Give us faith. Sink these truths down deep into our hearts so that we will fear no more. In Jesus' name, amen.